What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wadham. I'm Rachel Wadham, and welcome to Worlds Awaiting, helping children and parents explore the world of literacy. Today, we'll be exploring the worlds of lit world, illustrations, and visual formats. Our first guest is Pam Allen, the founder of Lit World, to talk about her children's literacy program. Then we'll listen to an interview with illustrator Melissa Sweet about her artwork. Our last guest will be Carrie Soper, and we'll discuss visual formats. Before we leave you, I'll step around the librarian's table with librarians from around Utah to talk about children, books, and life at the library. Along with our interviews, we'll have a book review of Thelma the Unicorn and learn about libraries at sea. But before all that, let's take a glimpse into my world. Rachel's One thing is very certain. Technology and how we use it today has expanded the concept of what a book is. A book certainly no longer needs to be print on paper, but it can apply technology in exciting and interesting ways. One of these applications that I love to follow are book-to-app transitions. This category is essentially a book or book character that has been recreated into an app. Sometimes these apps just take the book and put it into an app, making it more of an ebook. Sometimes app creators take the book a step further and add magical things that print books can't do, thus making the book interactive. Some apps just take the character or premise of a book and make a whole new application. No matter the form, these kinds of apps are exciting and take books to a whole new level. Now, don't get me wrong, not all apps are created equal, and some of these are big misses. And in all honesty, sometimes you just have to try them to see if they offer the kind of experience you want. Also, the reality is that most of the really great ones cost a little money, so you have to spend a little to get them. But in the end, there are those that are worth it. One of my own personal recommendations are Sandra Boynton's book apps. Boynton is an amazing artist who is well known for her outstanding board books. Her apps have taken four of her classic books and put the stories into apps. The apps recreate the book experience with a two-page spread where the user has to turn the page. But they also add in fun interactive elements where the characters move or items are added. All the interactives fit really well with the story and make sense for what is going on. So instead of distracting, they add another nice layer to the story. The books also add narration, so you can have the app read the book or you can read it yourself. Add in some subtle music and you have created a fun interactive app that is right for the kind of kids who love her board books. So if you are like us here at Rachel's World and you also look to look for new kinds of books, maybe it's time to check out the apps on your phone or tablet to see what kinds of new reading experiences await you. Rachel's World Children from around the world have a story to tell. It may be a story that they've created or a story that they've lived, but not everyone has ample access to literature or even the education to learn how to read or write. I'm on the phone today with Pam Allen, the founder of Lit World, an organization investing in children's literacy around the world. Welcome, Pam. 
Hey, Rachel, great to be here. Pam, you are involved in an amazing project called Lit World. So to start out this morning, why don't you tell us a little bit about what that is? Well, sure, I'd love to. And thank you so much for asking me about it. I started Lit World in 2007. Uh, My idea was really very simple. And it was about the fact that kids really do have their own stories to tell Um, We're in many parts of the world where there isn't a lot of access to children's literature, and I felt like, you know, kids within themselves have their own power of story, and there's so much strength to be had in that that we could really build an organizational idea around it. So we created two signature programs, one called Lit Club, which is an after-school program uh, that brings young people together to tell and share their stories, and then two, we created a kind of... version of Lit Club called Lit Camp, which is a summer literacy gap solution. Um, and the two, the two programs are kind of the signature programs for the bigger idea, which is really about the power of people's own stories and then the stories that our greatest children's book and young adult writers have written that really fuel the stories that children can tell and using those two great tools to actually motivate and inspire uh, lifelong literacy. And um, it's been just a joy, the journey. It's, uh, we're in 26 countries. We serve thousands of kids. Um, this year, um, uh, 135,000 kids in the U.S. went to Lit Camp. And across the world, we have thousands more in our Lit Clubs. And uh, it's just been awesome. So I'm, I'm really happy to, to be able to share with you about it today. It is awesome, Pam. And I, I tell all my friends and everything that I am a story junkie. I just, I love stories. And you you really say when you talk about your program that stories really are the key to creating social change. And I love that connection. And it's a grand connection. And I don't know if people really see that. So how do you see that? How are stories really that key to making broad social change? Well, I think, you know, I, I, I think about Lit World in a kind of three buckets around that idea, and it's this idea of self, community, and world, and that story matters at each of those in each of those three ways. That that social change or any kind of change is first coming from within us, and when children come to our Lit clubs and they've been really growing up in extreme poverty, um, extremely challenging circumstances, and many parts of the world where our, we work, you know, girls are very Less, much less likely than boys to actually be able to even go to middle school, much less high school. And so there's a lot of barriers, the gender barrier, the poverty barrier, the racial barrier. There's so many barriers. And for many of the children with whom Lit World works, the social change could seem like something very distant and far away because, you know, the, the systems are not in their favor. Many of the children we work with are living in urban areas or rural areas where there's access to very little, not even electricity or running water for that matter. But even here in our own great country, which has many resources, but doesn't really, they're not really spread equally around. um, There's a lot of, a lot of ways in which we see children here in this country really struggling with poverty um, and extreme discrimination. So lest we think this is only happening elsewhere, it's everywhere. And so you, we could be very overwhelmed by all that, and merely just bringing a book to a child is not going to be the only way to achieve social change. It really has to be a sense that the story that's 
told, and I often say this to the, our lit kids, is that the stories that get told and the stories that get written down are the stories that get remembered and that make change. You know, it's not surprising that Martin Luther King Jr. wrote a letter from a Birmingham jail, and that led to a lot of social change, that, that letter in and of itself. And it's, uh, it's, it's just a powerful, powerful tool story itself is saying, who do I want to be? And so starting with that sense of self at Lit World, we created this idea that we could use storytelling, oral storytelling, and the power of the written word to invite young people to say who they are, where they're coming from, what they're experiencing, because all of that then brings out into the light what is within them and gives them a sense that they have their, in fact, our mission statement is, I think, a beautiful mission statement because it's about saying that young people are authoring their own lives. They're actually getting to tell how the story is going to go. Obviously, in one minute, we can't change, you know, racial discrimination or the uh, the issue of being born into a zip code that really isn't giving you the opportunity that someone else's zip code will give them. But what we can say is that the, the young person, the child in that moment can say, I am the kind of person who's going to grow up to be this, or even today, I can have more agency in my life by, you know, walking a different path home or deciding to stand up to the bully in the schoolyard. And those things all come from a kind of reflective life. And literacy gives us that by reading, writing, and speaking and listening, we get to get to do that. And so I think that's the self part. And then the community world part is really about what our young people at Lit World are doing to change the world, that they look at their, for example, in in Kenya, what we found by really listening to what young people were saying is that girls living in poverty in Kenya were not actually going to school regularly because when they got their periods, they didn't have any way um, to manage them in public. And so they did not have the economic resources to do that. And so with shame, they would stay at home on the days that their periods came. And the reason that I speak very bluntly about this is because I do think a lot of this has been very hidden and very private and personal and embarrassing when, in fact, there's nothing embarrassing about it. It's a, it's a you know, it's part of your wellness. It's part of your, your own wellness. And I, and I then campaigned for us to provide um, sanitary supplies to girls in all of our lit clubs where, where that's needed because that way they could come regularly and they could start getting into the idea that, you know what, actually in many parts of the world, um, this, is, this, is, this is part of what it takes to, go to, to, to get over the hump um, of, of being sure you get to school on time, you get to school and you get to be there and your attendance is 100%. Um, and so those are the kinds of secret stories that everyone was afraid to bring out, but once they did, they said, wait, you too? Me too? Oh, hey, wait a minute. Um, and that's kind of uh, a, an intense example, but there are also, thinking about the boys we work with as well, and examples of boys in our clubs talking about boys saying to us, you know, I have a certain expectation as a man. I have to be like this when, in fact, I'm feeling like this. And I want to be able to be a man in a kind of, uh, you know, in a different kind of a way. I want to I want to be able to help my community. I want to be able to tenderly raise my, my children. I want to be able to read aloud to my sons, you know. And we, we want to embrace that story as social change because um, as I think one of the things that changed my life was, working with boys in foster care in New York City, and one of the boys saying to me one day, you know, I hate that I'm always identified as the kid who um, is the kid who was abused when I was little. Like, I want to have a different story. 
And I love that because I think part of what we do at Lit World is the idea of the hopeful story. It's the saying, I'm the kind of person who today I'm thinking about my baby brother because I love him and I want to do right by him. Or today I'm thinking about myself and my funny ways of telling jokes. You know, I'm, I'm hilarious, you know, things like that. And we, we want their stories to be more than just about what it means to suffer, but also what it means to achieve and to thrive. And I think that's really why story actually is a lever for so, social change, because at the end of the day, the people who do get to tell those stories of triumph are people who get to are literate and get to actually write them down and tell, give a speech, write it down, write a letter to the editor, write it down, you know, write an op-ed, write it down, write a book. You know, you, you have a lot of power when you can write. And we really want our kids to know that. Pam, I'm in awe. I, this is such an amazing program and such an amazing way to look at literacy. I think sometimes we underestimate the power of literacy and the reading and writing abilities. And I am so grateful that you are opening this world to so many children all over the world and engaging with them in these types of things. As we work down and close up our conversation today. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about how we can get involved? Are there ways we can get involved in Lit World? Or if not directly in your program, what are some ways that you would suggest maybe in our own communities developing these kinds of grand social changes through literacy? Well, I love that question, because I think we are all one community around literacy. Literacy is such a great it's such a, I love it because it's an equalizer, right? It's a, de, a democratic force for change. And also, I love that it's like whatever anyone's politics are, I think everyone can agree that reading and writing make your life better and will, for the children we serve who are the most vulnerable, actually make their lives better and more self-sufficient so that they don't grow up needing as much as perhaps people in their prior generations did. And I think that's that self-empowerment tool, I think, is a really um, powerful idea because it, it really just, it isn't, um, I feel this way and you feel that way. I think we can all agree on it. So the call to action that I would say is um, both on the local, national, and global scale, I mean, all three, um, is that at the at the global and national level would be to say, please come visit us at litworld.org. Uh, right now, we're in the, we're just about to open. Um, this, this is coming to the end of our 10th year anniversary, and we're really doing a lot of fundraising around um, building more lit clubs, more communities, and making sure lit camp is available uh, to more of our lit communities worldwide and nationwide, and you can be helpful to us in that. Um, We have lit chapters, lit world chapters starting in all different parts of the U.S., um, where we are inviting people to come together seven times a year. Um, We have a curriculum that we've developed where you can help us, both in terms of reaching out to our communities, and there's lots of fun ways to do that, and also by helping us to raise funds for our lit clubs. They're not that expensive, um, but they really have a huge payoff, and, and those are easy things to do on the national and global level. And then on the local level, um, we have World Read-Aloud Day coming up. It's a, a holiday that Lit World created. Um, it's happening this year in February. The date um, is a little up in the air because we have a very, very exciting celebrity uh, author who is um, working with us to nail the date, and we'll announce that probably in the next two weeks. 
Um, but we, we, we will be at the beginning of the first week of February in one of those dates between February 1st and 8th. And what, what I'd love to make a call to action to is to have everybody sign up at the Lit World website at litworld.org to do something in your community for World Read Aloud Day, whatever it might be, for yourselves, for a, for a community partner, read aloud to your grandchild, whatever local thing feels good for you so that we can get that energy and spirit of the power of reading just to keep that going like a wave all around the world. And that would be immensely helpful to us. And, uh, and so, yeah, we just love it. We, we love to have people involved with us at Lit World. So we, we hope you all um, join us and come visit us to, to get more involved. Thank you for the call to action. And I hope we'll have lots of our listeners jump up and accept that call. What a great thing, too, for families to do together. And what a great uh, service opportunity for families to get involved in. I know oftentimes there's, there's things that you can't do as a family, but this kind of thing is something everybody, even the littlest among us, can participate in and actually make some really broad global social change with just a few steps. So thank you so much for including all of us in this wonderful project. And I hope we will we will see more growth and development in, in the next 10 years of the program. Thank you. I, I feel the same. And we, we'd love everybody listening to be part of it in any way that you all want. And, and thank you, Rachel, so much for inviting me here to your great show. Pam Allen is the founder of Lit Life and Lit World. Next, we have story time with a book review of Thelma the Unicorn by Aaron Blaby. This story is about a pony named Thelma. Thelma, unpleased with her life, wishes to be a unicorn. Despite her best friend Otis reminding her that she is perfect the way she is, Thelma feels imperfect. One day, Thelma sees a carrot and decides to tie it to her nose and thought if she believed she was a unicorn, she would become one. Right as she thought this, a truck with pink paint and glitter spilled all over her. Thelma was finally someone special, a unicorn. With her newfound dream of being a unicorn, she also inherited fame. At first, Thelma loved it. Then she realized her fans would never leave her alone. Despite the constant presence of fans, Thelma felt lonely, so one day, Thelma decided to take off the carrot, wash off her pink sparkles, and go back to her friend Otis. Thelma discovered that she would rather just be herself. This book is such a good read aloud for the classroom and will excite children who are obsessed with unicorns. The book is arrayed with sparkly pink images bringing to life every child's dream of seeing a unicorn. The pictures also accurately portray the emotion Thelma is experiencing throughout the book. For example, on the page where Thelma is transformed into a unicorn, you are able to see her joy in her huge smile and happy prance. You also know she feels special because the author italicized the word special to emphasize her feelings. Through the pictures and words, you are able to feel Thelma's sadness, excitement, loneliness, and contentment. This book also captures the beautiful journey that many can relate to learning to love who you are. While it not only teaches this powerful message, it teaches that it is normal and acceptable to search for that love. Aaron Balby was able to show this acceptance through Thelma's best friend, Otis. While Otis continually reminded Thelma she was special, Otis did not scold her for spending time as a unicorn. 
Otis accepted Thelma's journey and was there for Thelma when she decided to come back. As children read this book, they learn that being their self is enough and that it is okay if you do not know that yet. While the story teaches positive self-love, it also shines a negative light onto fame. Thelma experienced loneliness as a result of abandoning her friend and achieving fame. While this can happen, and surely has for some, not all fame looks this way. Fame has come to many due to recognition of work or talent and has not left them lonely. While I am sure the author understands this, some children may take this to mean that fame will cause loneliness. It is important that children understand that following your dreams and achieving fame, if they so desire, does not mean they are unhappy with who they are. This book was powerful, beautiful, and is one of my new favorites, and I hope you all go check it out too. audience can tell if a character is sad, mad, or happy without any words being spoken because of the visual format. The same can be said for picture books. So much story is conveyed through just the illustrations. It makes one wonder what type of processes an illustrator goes through to get to that end result. That's why we sent out Jess, a member of our crew, to interview Melissa Sweet, an award-winning author and illustrator. Let's take a listen. We're sitting here with Melissa Sweet. We're so grateful to have you with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. One thing that you've said is that art should be fun. And I think I really love that. You know, it's, it's hard work and you have to be disciplined, but it really should be fun. And, and I just feel like you express yourself so well. Thank you. I have a quote on my wall by Alexander Calder, the, the man who made uh, the mobiles and stables. Uh, and he says, art should be happy and not lugubrious. <laughs> and I love that word lugubrious. And for the longest time, I thought he meant that when you look at art, it should make you feel happy and mm-hmm. not sad or lugubrious. But now I realize I think he meant when you make it, it should be happy. You should be having fun. And not that everything we are doing is um, a jolly scene or uh, doesn't have emotion, but that we are enjoying the process. And, you know, something that's really <coughs> amazing to me is especially your book, Balloons Over Broadway, you're featuring Tony Stark, and he is an artist in his own right. And I just feel, how do, you, how do you balance his artistic style with your own, while keeping your own artistic style and portraying his story? Mm-hmm. That is a, an excellent question because it's a challenge. Most artists are very good at mimicking another artist. If you just take a little time, you can kind of figure mm-hmm. it out. And that's how that book started was that I was trying to look like Tony Sarg. I couldn't help myself. I was looking at his work and kind of copying it and saying, how did he do this? But what it came down to was that his work was very three-dimensional. He made puppets and Mm -hmm. toys along with inventing the Macy's Parade balloons. And it was the process and the materials that he used, wood, paper, paper paper-mâché, 
uh, painted pieces. And I began making toys sort of like Tony Sark, thinking that, well, maybe we can use these in the book. It would feel like his studio. So that was how that came to be. But I'm, I, I appreciate your saying it because what I wanted kids or readers to feel was what it felt like to be Tony Sargon, all the exuberance and the riot of color and the, the creative process that was all around him all the time. Yeah, one, one thing I really love about that's I think is consistent throughout all your um, work, especially the collage and mixed media pieces, is there's always something new to find on the page. And I'm just so curious as to the editorial process of art and what stays and how to make a good balance. I just want to dig into your mind a little bit about what you what you think about. Yeah, that's a great question. And it's, um, it's an important one because just like writing is about editing, mm -hmm. art is about editing, absolutely. The work starts with the text or the manuscript in some fashion. That's the inspiration. But in a picture book biography, it's not imperative to be wedded completely to the text. Mm -hmm. We want to bring a little bit more about who this person is or the materials would reflect that. So I'm choosing materials that are appropriate to this particular story. And once I've chosen the materials and I sort of know the kind of scene I want to create and I know the text, well, you know what I'm reflecting, then I can start in on the collage, and a lot of it's painted too. Mm -hmm. So there's there's that element, but at a certain point, the art begins to take over, and I'm and I'm making a piece of art rather than illustrating a book. So it has to work, not only as each page as a piece of art, but the whole book has to work like a like a mini movie, so that. Um, everything feels cohesive and that all those decisions were important um, to carry like a continuum throughout the book. And um, I think that the editing process is important because if it's too busy, you don't, you don't, ca mm -hmm. you don't catch that theme. Right. I'm, you know, one, one, um, I can't think. <laughs> um, in the book, Roger and his thesaurus, I know it, it, it seemed like a challenge to me because a lot of the art was his words and his lists, and the typography is absolutely beautiful. And But you also have the narrative text. And how did you um, find that balance between representing his words and his list but not overwhelming the text as okay. well? Yeah. Uh, yes, that was really an interesting challenge because... To write a, to illustrate a book about a writer, you know, writing is a pretty stationary act. You can't have him sitting there writing everything, every time, every page. I mean, right, right. and I, 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 in thinking about Roger, he really was a consummate list maker. So that begs the question: Well, what is a list? Does a list have to be a, a typewritten word or a hand-lettered word in pencil or pen? Could a, could it be? Um, you know, big, bold hand lettering as well? Could it be a list of leaves or a list of color or a list of sticks or something else? What, uh, we, could we could list anything, really. Mm -hmm. And what I realized was that in addition to Jen's text, I needed to show the words he was, he was writing to some degree to kind of get the give the readers the content of it. So as the book starts out, we have some pretty bold um, words from his Latin list. And as the, as we go through the book, they get more and more intense and detailed. And that was one way of um, segueing the words out from the text a little bit. Mm -hmm. 
I just want to, I, I love your book on EBY. I'm actually in the middle of it right now. Okay. Um, it's just, it's just so fascinating. And I know I have a favorite, one of my favorite quotes from the book is actually in a letter that E.B. White received from his father. And he's talking about learning from his siblings. And he says, you know, you, you've learned from their experiences. Um, and he says, you haven't had to learn wisdom, you absorb it. And I love that quote. Maybe it's because I have a lot of older siblings and I've learned from their mistakes. But I also thought that applies to what we absorb from literature and art. And I'm just curious about your thoughts. I have to say, it's really interesting hearing you say that out loud because I just heard it differently. And I appreciate your saying it because it is a remarkable thing. One of the th- interesting things about that letter was that his father wrote it at all. I mean, my father never wrote me a letter like that. But I do think I think it's true. He really benefited from being the young, the youngest of six by by a long shot. I mean, he had a sister married with children like mm-hmm. when he was five years old or something. So there is that, and just the idea, just the value. He, his father pointing out the value of um, and. A, urging him to appreciate that at that young young age i thought it was remarkable was especially lucky in a way that the fam- the white family g- gave me permission to use that sort of thing because as i was saying to a, a group just a few minutes ago was that those archival documents his quotes and that letter of, in particular they say so much more about eb white than i ever could mm-hmm. there's just no way to paraphrase it so Historically, to have it um, just made the book, the book uh, really it gave the book more depth. Absolutely, and it really just it brings you into that context of who was around him and what was he learning from, and the examples in his lives. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I I love it. I was wondering, do you have a favorite quote of E.B. White's? Oh, I, there's so many favorite quotes of E.B. <laughs> White. Um, I think one of my, the one I often say to kids is what, what the one where um, the New York Times at, in an interview asked him what he was trying to say in books, and he said, all that I hope to say in books, all that I ever hope to say, is that I love the world. It's all there if you dig around. And I, I think we often try to get underneath the skin of a writer and find out a hidden meaning. But E.B. White's message, I believe, is that it, his life and his beliefs are all in his writing. All we, In order to get to know E.B. White, all we need to do is read E.B. White. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And it, I feel you know, the authors and, and books that I connect to the most, art that I connect to the most, is where I can feel the author's heart and personality and just honesty, I think, that blunt honesty. Um, but thank you so much, Melissa, for meeting with us and for sharing your thoughts today. Thank you so much for having me. It was wonderful to be here. Jess Verzello of the World's Awaiting Team had a chance to sit down with author Melissa Sweet to discuss her illustrations. Now, let's explore Libraries on the Sea with our student producer, Sarah Byington. My name is Karina Orton. I lived on a sailboat for a year. I have since done a lot of traveling, and pretty much everywhere I go, I like to visit the libraries. She spent most of her sailing excursion in the Caribbean. In the past, there haven't been many libraries in the Caribbean. The first in the Bahamas was formed on the island of New Providence 
1837. That building was converted from a hectic colonial prison to a peaceful library. Pretty much everywhere I went in the Caribbean, if there was a library, we went to it. So I've been to tiny little libraries, one that was set up in like a, like a trailer attached to a small movie theater that seated like 15 people and we just sat on the floor and read. And so throughout the Caribbean, we'd just go to a new library wherever we could find one and pick up the book that we had started at the previous library because we were always on the move. From St. Bart's to Saba to St. Eustasis, her family bounced from island to island during their adventure. There are actually more than 7,000 islands in the Caribbean. Some are rocky islets. Others are covered in lush rainforests. Steep mountain ranges and volcanoes stretch across the majority of the islands. Not all of the libraries were accessible, I think, because we didn't have a car always. Other than that, we were in pretty small towns, and so they weren't that hard to find. I guess I don't know if we didn't find them, because if we found them and we could go to them, we did 100% of the time. Sailing long distances can be a grueling task. Sailors can be out to sea for days before seeing land. In their case, they would rotate family members throughout the night to keep watch and stay the correct course. I didn't always have access to a library, but sometimes when living on a boat, they would have book swaps. So there was one really big one on the island of St. Martin. So it's not exactly the same as a library, but it functions like a library as someone living on a boat. Libraries have functioned differently over time. They first began as record rooms and then transitioned into large private collections for the royal and wealthy. Books weren't easily available to the general public until the printing press was created. That invention led to higher literacy rates and became fundamental towards building a need for public libraries all around the world. I've been to England, Germany, France, Switzerland, Finland, Ireland... There is an estimated 2.3 million libraries worldwide. From bustling cities to rural towns, libraries create a space for all types of people from many different cultures. Just seeing the way the different spaces are, a place for gathering, a place where you can just curl up with a book, but also a place where you can meet a friend. And it's interesting to see the different design of libraries, different spaces. There's a really interesting one in Stuttgart, Germany. It's this huge cube and everything's white all the shelves and everything and you it looks very artistic because you know you have all the the white base of things and then all the colorful books and there's really comfy chairs everywhere and I don't speak German but there were some books that had lots of pictures like one about interior design or something so I gravitated towards that and flipped through it there is this sense of like this is a place that I feel really comfortable in and there is a similar energy no matter what type of library it is whether it's grandiose or a small little trailer with ratty carpet. However, all types of public libraries around the world are suffering. They rely heavily on the public support in order to survive. However, it's not necessary to travel across the world to support public libraries. Visit a local library today.
Symbols and visual cues are everywhere. A 15-minute car ride can contain tons of messages, from green means go to the billboards we pass on the highway. We may not always think about them, but these visual messages are important, and we need to help our children understand these various types of messages. We have in studio today Carrie Soper, a scholar who studies comics and visual literacy. Welcome, Carrie. Hi, Rachel. Thanks. Let's talk a little bit about visual kinds of literacies and just the visual nature of our society today. I know you study comics and and film and other types of things and looking at how the visual aspects of our world have impacted us. So tell us a little bit about how you think that has changed over time. Well, we are immersed or inundated with, you know, visual imagery. It's often, you know, loud. I mean, we've got all this CGI and Um, special effects and advertising that is very garish. And and so we can sometimes experience a a bit of uh, sensory overload. And so it's important to be able to slow down and uh, think carefully about what's happening as we're being impacted by it. I know as a scholar, you approach these types of things in a very critical way. So how do you frame this conversation of these visual images and their impact on society as a scholar? Well, you know, when I teach uh, about comics, I help people to slow down and realize what's going on psychologically, intellectually, emotionally, as they're engaging with uh, comics. Uh, For example, in their distilled, simplified form, where they're broken up into these panels, we are bringing a lot of our own thoughts and feelings to the completion of the narrative. Um, the space between panels, for example, is called a gutter, and often there's a lot taking place between those those two panels. So it's almost like we're a, a filmmaker that's editing or splicing together those two frames. So I think you know slowing down and being able to understand uh, the formal elements, the mechanisms of these visual devices is really enlightening. Um, you know when you when you look at movies and advertising that that rely on, you know, big, powerful archetypes or garish imagery that's visually stimulating or appealing, it's important to uh, gain some of the critical thinking that comes from disciplines like uh, semiotics. Uh, Semiotics, as applied to popular culture, is simply a way of deconstructing or breaking apart the way that powerful values and myths and ideas get communicated through um, iconic symbols. Uh, I'm not saying that everyone has to go to college and take some critical theory class, right? But they could if they wanted to. They could, to. yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, but in, I think, organic ways, you can uh, train yourself and your family to do some of these kind of theoretical moves. For example, you know, the Marlboro cigarette latched on to this iconic image of the American cowboy and used it to sell a product that was actually quite harmful to people who, who purchased it. Um, the advertisers who created that visual campaign in the 1950s were actually trying to revive a cigarette that had been marketed up until that time to women. And so somehow they repackaged it and were able to get people to associate this almost you know, generic cigarette with all of these notions of male masculinity and freedom, a a whole package of ideas that had accrued around that sign 
through years of people watching popular Western movies. Um, so the, the manipulative power of that symbol was was incredible. Yeah. I think it's interesting that so much of that is unconscious, that we don't really realize it's out there. And so often parents want to protect their children or help them, you know, keep them away from these kinds of things. But they're out there and they're available. And for me, one of the critical things is helping them be critical about it, because especially in this day and age, they're going to encounter them. And if they don't have some of these critical skills at looking at this and saying, okay, what message is it trying to send me? How am I interpreting this message? I think we're sending our kids out kind of unarmed (laughs) into a confusing world. Well, you know, as a a parent myself, I've raised two, you know, teenage daughters, the imagery that they encounter in this whole beauty industry, all these fashion magazines, and the way that, you know, filters into popular film and television as well. If, you, if you're not talking about that actively with your, your daughters as they grow up and sort of deconstructing it, like, you know, just using your own critical thinking skills, they can be easily um, swayed or, or affected. I mean, we just look at some of the, you know, trauma that comes with eating disorders and other self-esteem issues if if girls become too invested in the uh, myths or notions that undergird these constructed images, you know, images that are often airbrushed and uh, idealized in unrealistic uh, degrees. Yeah, and I think it's interesting. People seem to be more aware of this today, but at the same time, it, it is a very individual experience, too. So part of the critical literacy that we're trying to build here is how is this impacting me as an individual? And that's not something we can we can say to all girls, oh, you know, you need to not see this in this way because not all will interpret that cowboy image with the same emotionality. That's true. It, it, it depends on your own background or, or cultural uh, formation. You know, there was a, a demographic that bought into that cowboy archetype. But, you know, if, if you're a Native American kid that grew up on a reservation, you're going to see that icon radically, you know, differently, right, than, than some kid that, who grew up in the suburbs playing cowboys and Indians. Or, yeah, know. yeah. And I mean, it's it's really interesting to see how people in advertising and film and even in comics use these things to help kind of essentially manipulate us into that place. So how do we help our children understand that? What are some concrete things we can do to help them understand that sometimes they are being manipulated and and they need to deal with that in a very positive way? Well, I think, you know, some parents get overwhelmed and they think, I just need to shut all this stuff out. Like I need to protect my child. And so there are these draconian measures taken to kind of censor everything that that a child watches. I think that is important. I mean, we don't just set our kids loose, right? But, you know, I think you do them a disservice by trying to artificially shelter them from all of the media that their friends are engaging with. I think parents need to to jump in and um, participate with their kids in consuming that entertainment and making it a family tradition to enjoy it, but also to talk critically about it, sort of dissecting some of the um, manipulative mechanisms going on or some of the the, the myths that are, are uh, sort of supported or communicated by different heroic archetypes. And maybe even questioning whether we really want to elevate those figures as our uh, ultimate sort of 
you know, examples. Yeah, and I think that's interesting, especially when we talk about teens in particular, this is so much a part of their lives and just a part of their identity fulfillment. Yeah, so to be culturally literate as a teenager, you've got to be able to go to school and talk in a very adept way about these superhero sort of genre, you know, conventions or hero types. Um, And then, you know, for younger kids, it's like the latest animated Pixar movie or or Disney film. It's like a new set of fairy tales or myths for the the 21st century. Yeah, it is. And helping them understand how that is and then take what's good from it and then reject what's bad in that discussion that you said we need to have. And that becomes a different experience than just the consumption part of it. Exactly. Well, I mean, the the movie-going experience um, can't really be stopped in in mid-viewing. Like, you were in this theater, kind of immersed in darkness with Dolby surround sound, and you're not even aware sometimes of other people around you. It's such a transporting out-of-body experience. And so it's hard to have your critical faculties on alert during the moment, and so you need to take time later. Let me just add that um, we often use movies as uh, babysitters. Like we just stick them in the the DVD player, and sometimes they'll run back-to-back for toddlers or young kids without us ever even engaging with with our kids, right? So that becomes a a real powerful part of their worldview. Um, And these these animated films can have very positive things going on, but they can also do strange things occasionally that that aren't necessarily positive. For example, Disney during the um, 20th century had this practice of taking old fairy tales that had sort of rougher, darker edges, often cautionary tales that introduced the notion of death or other, you know, dark adult lessons in in powerful ways to children. And Disney softened those edges and often made them feel-good movies that flattered, you know, uh, a very sheltered sort of suburban worldview. Like The Little Mermaid becomes a celebration of teenage sort of rebellion rather than what it originally was, sort of a cautionary tale about listening to your parents when it comes to notions of of romance or who you should marry. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And for me, one of the things I love to do is compare and contrast, because especially with these hugely archetypal things, they come in so many different forms. And so I love to take like the original fairy tale and the movie version and this other person's version and help compare and contrast it. And we can even do that with very young kids. They're very sophisticated in their thinking. I think sometimes we we don't give the young kids enough credit. (laughs) For how critical they can be. Yeah, how critical they can be. Yeah. Yeah. What a cool idea to to show them multiple adaptations of the same fairy tale. Yeah. Yeah. And I think even even the younger kids are so critical about what they watch. And I think we can just give them that credit to say, look, you know, I'm critical about it too. And maybe I don't understand everything that I'm seeing, or maybe I'm not interpreting it the best way. So this kind of discussion, I think is... Dialogue where you learn from them as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I know I I've learned, even in my scholastic career as as a scholar, I learned so many things from kids. They see things that I don't necessarily see as an adult. Absolutely. So being able to talk with them, I think, is an amazing balance of all of this information. Being open to their ideas as well. That's great. Yeah. That's a great thing to end on. Thanks so much for your time today, Carrie. Appreciate it. Thanks, Rachel. Carrie Soper is an author and a scholar. Now, join me around the librarian's table as I talk with librarians from around Utah about children, books, and life at the library. Today, I'm in studio with Lindsay and Meredith, librarians from Salt Lake City, to talk about the summer slide. 
Welcome, ladies. Hello. Thank you, we are so excited to have you here today. One of the things that I think is so interesting about libraries and that a lot of people know is that we do summer reading. And mm-hmm. so tell us a little bit about your summer reading program at Salt Lake City. Of course. Well, one yeah. of the things that we've had to adjust to the past few years is to getting out of the habit of calling it summer reading. Good point. Good we point. <laughs> uh, refer to it as the super summer challenge because it's not just about reading, although that is important. We try to incorporate all sorts of learning and all sorts of activities that families can do together and things for all ages and trying to get the idea that people really should challenge themselves whatever that involves in any way they would like during the summer. So talk a little bit more about that challenge. What are some of the challenges, right, that may not be reading or that may be reading? What what are the challenges that they're expected to do? Right. Well, so we have two um, kind of different options as far as activities go. So there is a reading, right, that you can do. And we recommend for kids 20 minutes a day um, during the the summer, summer, right? And then um, so they're definitely able to do that. And we actually, they can do only reading if that's what they, if that's what you're into and that's what you want to do. That's awesome. Um, But... We also have explore activities. Ooh, I love it. (laughs) Yes. So, for example, the library has um, some virtual reality kits and sets that are going to be traveling to all of our locations. So you can come and um, take part in one of those fun activities, and that counts as an activity in your challenge. So that's a really fun one. Another one that I also really like is um, the main library has a garden plot. So you can come and check out the garden plot, learn about um, the plants that are there, or maybe some activities you can do at home in your own garden, and that counts as an activity for the challenge. So there's lots of – it's a wide range, a wide scope of activities, and hopefully there's something for everybody. Yeah. You know, that's one of the things I love about libraries is it is about exploring our world, right? It's not just about – reading, which is one way to explore the world, but it's about all these other kinds of things that allow kids and parents and families to kind of expand their horizons exactly. in a different yeah. thing. I mean, what, as you see kids and families going through this every summer, what are some of the benefits? What are some of the positive things that you hear about these kinds of programs? I think definitely one of them is when they tell us, because only recently in the past few years have we started doing not only reading activities, right, all these other ones, and um, having them come in and tell us how much fun they had together as a family or as, a, you know, friends. And that is, I think, one of the most, like, top um, takeaways for me is how much fun people are having together with these activities. Yeah, I yeah. agree. And um, in my experience, seeing people who maybe normally wouldn't participate in a program like this realizing that it's not just for kids, it's for all ages and that they can participate in activities that maybe will hopefully trigger an interest in something that they didn't know a lot about before. And if that leads to them checking out a book about that or going online and trying to learn more or signing up for a course, uh, that they can delve into that topic a little bit more and hopefully meeting other people who share the same interests and create that kind of connected community. And that's such a key word to me, right, is community, because that's the other thing. You know, libraries help us explore our world, and then libraries bring us together as a community. Mm -hmm. And I love, I love that these kinds of programs 
do both of those things in such a beautiful, wonderful way. Yeah. <laughs> they connect that and, and foundationalize it. You talk about the, the fact that they're for all ages. And I think that this is something that a lot of people don't realize, particularly about programs offered like this in the summer for families, is that it really literally is for all ages. I mean, adults can do this too, right? Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. And infants. Yeah. And, yeah. and and caretakers of infants. Yeah. And so... And teens. And yeah, teens. And teens. Get Let's those not teens. forget the teens. Yeah. From <laughs> babies to like... 100. 130. <laughs> <Beyond>. <laughs> yeah, like, until you are dead, you can participate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> From the moment you are born until, until you die, you can participate exactly. <laughs> in a library. So what are some of the changes that you make depending on the age group? I mean, are there different options and that type of thing? Right. So for our baby toddler tracker, there's not as much focus on reading, but we definitely want to encourage caretakers to read with their children, but also to do other um, early literacy skills, singing, playing, writing skills, and encouraging them to to see the connection that the things that they maybe do with their children on a regular basis or don't do with their children on a regular basis, but that they can start doing are actually helping them develop those early literacy skills. And we intentionally put in activities in all of the age trackers that um, are spread throughout that can be done with families of all ages instead of in isolation to try and create that, um, you know, we're working together and we can all cross this off on our trackers. And then um, with our children's tracker, we put in a lot more of the, the learning and uh, reading in different ways kind of activities, reading about different things. We also are encouraging children to recommend books to teens and adults that they think are the best books ever. I love and that. And that cross-generational um, interaction through our library displays we'll have up all summer long to either remind adults of something that they lo- loved when they were a child also or um, – gain an interest in something that they've never read before, but that is important to a child. And when a child sees an adult getting excited about reading, that does so much for them internally. Oh, underscore that point. <laughs> Double underscore. Highline, bold. Flashing light. <laughs> point. Yeah. yeah. Whatever you want to do with that, because yeah, that really, for me, is so foundational that having a child seeing a parent or a caregiver or an adult in their life that they love and care for reading and doing these kinds of literacy activities or engaging in their community. Just it's what makes it possible for them Mm -hmm. to do it. Yeah. Lindsay, you, you mentioned teens. Mm -hmm. So, so what about, so what about our teen group? What what do we do for them? Don't forget them. We don't forget them. (laughs) And it's, I mean, in all honesty, it's a really important thing because particularly for teens in the summer when they're out of school, Mm -hmm. they're, you know, there can be some trouble, totally. you know, because if they don't have any directed focus and libraries are such a great way to focus that energy and keep them occupied. So I love that sense yeah. too. Yeah. Well, one thing that we have that I think is pretty unique for us um, as a library system for teens in the summer is we have a teen squad program. Very cool. So the teens can uh, volunteer to help out during the summer with a lot of our programs or signing kids up um, and giving out their prizes once they've come in. And this also really helps. They go through an interview process, um, really helps kind of give them those pre 
job skills. Fabulous. Um, which is something that we know is really important. And it's super successful. They have a lot of fun. You know, we give them prizes. We give them their own special, you know, badge, name tags. So they feel like they really are part of the community and, and library when they come in to help out. That is so amazing. And I love those kinds of programs that you're right, just build those kind of job skills, help that kind of sense of volunteerism in the community, all of those kinds of things. Definitely one of those kinds of social literacies we need to start building Absolutely. with teens, particularly at that opportunity and working in a library what more fun could you want? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the way I spend my summer, working in the library. Yeah. So I love it. That's fabulous. Check out Salt Lake City, what they have to offer this summer, and check out what your local library has to offer this summer. Lots of that's great right. fun in the summer in the library. Yay. <laughs> Thank you, ladies. You're welcome. Yeah. Thank you. Many thanks to Lindsay and Meredith for joining me around the librarian's table today. We've had a great show. We talked to Pam Allen, the founder of Lit World. Then we interviewed author Melissa Sweet about her artwork. Our last guest was Carrie Soper, and we discussed visual literacy. If you missed any of today's show, or if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on the BYU Radio app or at byuradio.org, as well as on most podcast apps and websites. If you want to know more about what we do here at Worlds Awaiting, feel free to follow our Instagram at Worlds Awaiting. This has been a production of BYU Radio. Our producer is Cole Wissinger. Our student production assistant is Sarah Byington. And our technical advisor is Braden Flint. I'm Rachel Wadham, looking forward to the worlds that are waiting next week. Thank you for exploring with us.